Hey, thanks for joining us for the Hemisync Podcast. We're joined today by the great Dr. Dean Radin. Dean is probably best known as the chief scientist at IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. But Dean is also a noted author. His most recent book is called Real Magic, and it studies psi phenomenon, um, including lots of the clinical data in support of it, um, some of the biases against it, and offers some historical perspective as well. So it's a book of science and also of history. We pick up the conversation here, filmed at IONS, with Dean offering some perspective for those of us who might not find too much good with the modern world. Ancient man could go a thousand years with very little changing in his day-to-day -day life. Please welcome Dean Radin. Yeah, we, we are upset because uh, every two weeks we have to update our computers. Mm -hmm. uh, and ancient times, meaning really only about 200 years ago and before that, uh, nothing would change for hundreds of generations, right. absolutely nothing. So the, the main source of uh, things of interest would be the change of seasons. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting. Uh, sometimes you, you would have the, uh, the solstice, that could be a big surprise, uh, but otherwise nothing would happen. So we, we live in very strange times from a historical perspective where the rate of change of almost everything is, is so fast that we can just barely keep up with it. So I think one of the reasons why many people feel overwhelmed, there's never enough time to do anything, and it's, it's not an illusion, it's simply that everything actually is changing very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so maybe faster than the human body is able to accommodate to it very easily. I mean, from, for, as I said, for thousands of years, nothing changed in terms of, of uh, evolutionary pressure mm -hmm. on people. So we're in a period now where we are being pushed by evolution and probably into something new that we don't know what that is yet. Right. And I think one of the points that you make that's really important um, is historically, you know, the church needed to maintain control over the populace. Right. And so there is this period of the Inquisition, um, which you know, we think of as history, but many of the biases that were established at that time against things like magic, or the unexplained, or the things that were um, scary or threatened the power structure, those were established long ago. They kind of stay with us to this day. Yeah, we think of the Inquisition as, as ancient history, but the, uh, the impulse for power control that created the Inquisition in the first place, which was the Catholic Church, has been around forever. Yeah. There has always been an Inquisition. There are Inquisitions today. The, the consequences of the Inquisition, depending on what culture you're in, are either uh, being shunned or not getting a grant or being killed. Mm -hmm. And all of that is still true today. There are places on earth you can go that are doing exactly what the Spanish Inquisition did in the medieval times. Uh, but we see Inquisitions happening constantly in the academic world as well. Right. They just have slightly different consequences. So it's all about maintaining the status quo mm -hmm. for whoever is in power. Mm -hmm. And in terms of psi and magic, the reason why those, those, that aspect of human experience was suppressed and declared heretical had nothing to do with what they believed because they all believed in such things. It had to do with someone outside of church authority being perceived as being a magician or having mm -hmm. special abilities and then challenging the authority of the church because they could attract people. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a matter of power control, essentially. And so today, um, certainly those that are associated with any sort of orthodox religion, 
tend to shy away from the idea of magic or of psi. Um, but also the scientific establishment is equally scared of associating themselves with anything associated with psi or um, magic. Um, and in terms of what we're talking about here, we're, we're talking about real magic. Um, which, by the way, is the title of the book. Which is the title of the book. Yes. And we're talking about um, phenomena that can be actually measured. Um, and in terms of the mental space that um, you suggest this takes place in, you like to use the term gnosis, which is a Greek term meaning simply knowledge, but really it means more of a deeper knowledge and mm -hmm. intuitive direct knowledge that transcends rational thought. Right. Um, which, by the way, is the same root word as noetic. Mm -hmm. So our institute, institute of Noetic Sciences. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, gnosis and noetic come from the same idea, which is to know, but to know in a way that is deeper than rationality, right. I'd say. Right. And so um, this is not a how-to book, but um, gnosis is an ancient concept, you know, borrowed from Plato, Socrates, and kind of adapted somewhat by Plotinus a bit later on. Um, but you introduce this concept of the big C, so consciousness with a big C, mm -hmm. um, which is a consciousness that is attached to this gnosis or connected to this gnosis versus, or maybe is this gnosis. Yeah, probably is. It is this gnosis. Yeah. The gnosis is the human experience of big C, right. universal consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast to this idea of consciousness with a small C, which is what most of us experience walking around. Yeah, it's the out. thing that you call me. Yeah. It's that uh, personal experience. Yeah. Right. Um, and so um, is this concept of gnosis then beyond space time, would you say? Yeah, yeah. The, the concept, the, well, let me back up a bit here because the, from a, a scientific perspective, you have to um, see through the lens of science, you, you view the world as matter and energy mm -hmm. with concepts of space and time or space time and so on. But basically the bottom is matter and energy. Right. From that model, it's very difficult to figure out where does awareness come from? Mm -hmm. Why are we aware? Why do we have consciousness? And that's why it's considered one of the primary puzzles in science today. Right. The way it's usually expressed is what is the biological basis for consciousness? Mm -hmm. But it's actually bigger than that. Like what could give rise to that at all? What is it? So this is a problem in science and, and philosophers have been talking about the mind-body problem forever right? without much resolution. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I look back at the esoteric traditions, both in the West and the East, was to look for clues as to what did people think about this issue for thousands of years as opposed to the couple of hundred years of science. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you find very quickly that there's a single thread that runs through all of the esoteric traditions, and it's the notion that consciousness is fundamental. Mm -hmm. That means it's more fundamental than the physical world. Right. It's, be, it's before space and time. It's before matter and energy. Right. It, it's woven into the fabric of reality in some way. It just is. So that, that being the case, we talk about big C consciousness. It means that it, it is everywhere and every when because it is prior to space and time. Mm -hmm. So presumably per, it, it permeates the universe as best as we can tell. And it permeates everything else, including our bodies, our brains, and our minds. Mind here meaning the cognitive apparatus of, of whatever the brain is doing. Yeah. 
So our, it may say that the, if that is true, that the spark of awareness that we all share is the same as the spark of awareness of the universe at large. Mm -hmm. And from that same awareness emerges the physical world. Right. That's what the esoteric traditions say. If that is correct, and this is what mystics have been trying to tell us forever, mm -hmm. then suddenly, rather than psychic phenomena or magic being perceived as anomalous or even impossible, they suddenly become obvious. Mm -hmm. So this is, and, and so the, the resistance that we, we typically see in the academic world is saying, no, this whole consciousness thing, that can't possibly be so. Uh, of course, uh, part of that is not true, as I point out in the book, that at the leading edge of science now, there are many people beginning to em embrace ideas like panpsychism, mm -hmm. which is that all matter contains some kind of element of sentience. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one step toward full idealism, which is the, the philosophical basis of consciousness is fundamental. When I, I use these kinds of words and talk about psi and magic to my academic colleagues, um, many say that that can't be right because it suggests that we'd have to throw away the textbooks. Right. And we don't want to throw away the textbooks because their whole careers are based on writing those textbooks and yeah. teaching them. And more importantly, a lot of it works. Yeah. So the challenge is how do we begin to embrace more of an idealistic perspective without throwing away materialism? Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the things I propose in the book as a, a fairly simple way of doing that. And all it requires really is just taking materialism as we currently understand it as a, a philosophical basis of understanding reality and expanding it a little bit, which is what science has always done. Yeah. We take an idea and make it more and more comprehensive. And what we will see then, I predict, is that eventually the current scientific worldview, which is based on materialism, will be seen as a special case mm -hmm. of a more comprehensive worldview. Right. That more comprehensive worldview will be idealistic, and the inner core will look like materialism as we understand it today. But it's actually much bigger than that. Right. And so your um, assertion that consciousness is fundamental or is primary um, is obviously in contrast to kind of the conventional wisdom of the academic scientific um, accepted truth that physical uh, matter is primary. Right. And you tend to think of it in terms of a pyramid, I guess, where by the conventional model has physics at the bottom um, and then you know, chemistry and biology kind of stacked on top of it. Right. And your model would basically put consciousness at the very bottom. Yeah. And so the evidence for Psy now, which is quite substantial and we won't kind of re review all of it here, um, that really supports your view of the world. Um, and so there have been multiple Six Sigma studies now, and I don't remember—I don't recall the exact math, but that's something like a billion to one, right? That's right. Um, so we've had a number of these studies now, and they don't seem to change the conventional thinking much at all. Um, and so do you think more data is going to help? Like, what do you think is going to help the cause here in terms of um, establishing this idea that consciousness is fundamental and primary? Well, there's two approaches. One is you come up with a pragmatic application, which finesses the scientific objection. Mm -hmm. That's one approach. We may or may not be able to do that. The other one, which I think is more viable, is to provide an explanation. Yeah. So the I, I don't I'm not providing applications in the book, but by re reforming our assumptions about the way we think about reality, that leads to an explanation. Yeah. 
it, it's not an explanation that we think of in, in mechanistic terms. Like normally when in science you'd say, well, what is the mechanism of action of that thing? What's right. the causal sequence which made it possible? Which is one of the criticisms against some of these size studies is that there's no theory or... Right, that, right. That, not only no theory, but yeah. that the phenomena themselves not only seem to transcend space and time, but yeah. they also seem to violate our ordinary ways of thinking about causal connections. Yeah. And so it looks anti-scientific. Mm-hmm. It looks like something just happened and that that's... That can't happen yeah. within this worldview. So, so we need to expand our worldview and allow other things to take place. Mm-hmm. If you start to imagine that ordinary causation, cause and effect, is a special case of a more comprehensive worldview, and actually, even already in thermodynamics and in quantum mechanics, we know that ordinary causation does not work that way. Mm-hmm. It does. It seems to work that way at the everyday scale, but not at lower levels. So we, we already know that, that everyday experience is a special case. Mm-hmm. We're just basically saying, let's expand that out a little bit further. And now imagine that things like intention, which is part of the internal experience, that intention is on a very small humanistic scale, exactly what the universe is doing to manifest what we see out there. Yeah. So what we see out there looks like, well, how in the world could, it, could a universal intention do that? But we're seeing it in such a very tiny slice of a time scale that it's very difficult for us to imagine 10 years, mm-hmm. never mind billions of years. Mm-hmm. So, but that, who knows what could happen in billions of years? Right. Our, our current understanding of the Big Bang is that it all happened within microseconds. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Right. Does it, does it make sense to talk about microseconds in a timeless, spaceless place? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we cast it in terms of our perspective. Like, let's say that light goes 186,000 miles per second. Not from light's point of view, it doesn't. <laughs> so right. a lot of it depends on when, which direction you're looking at the problem from. So maybe the Big Bang was a big explosion. Maybe from its perspective, whatever that is, mm-hmm. it was a, a, a deliberate and slow process that, that flourished in exactly the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very interesting. Um, now, so I don't want to get too deep into all the evidence for SAI, but you've been involved in a couple experiments or a couple experiments that I did want to highlight that I think are very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the first was a series of double slit experiments that you did. You just kind of briefly talk about that and the evidence that came out of that. Sure. So a, a double slit optical system is an interferometer. Mm-hmm. It's a way of demonstrating that uh, light has both wave and particle-like aspects, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. It was voted the most beautiful experiment in physics some years ago by mm-hmm. readers of Physics Today magazine, mm-hmm. because it's so simple, and yet it shows very profound nature of, of light mm-hmm. and reality. So the reason why the double system is an interesting one study as a side target is because uh, it, it is known that if you gain information about the path of the photons, then they will behave differently. They'll mm-hmm. behave like particles rather than waves. It raises the question, of course, of what do we mean by gaining information, mm-hmm. which is the same as measurement, which might be the same as consciousness. Mm-hmm. Consciousness gets information, knowledge about things. So the idea was, what if you uh, ask somebody to essentially use clairvoyance to look inside the optical system and gain information about what the photons are doing. Mm-hmm. And if you could do that, then 
presumably, the behavior, the wave-like behavior of light would start to change into particle like behavior. Yeah. If that happens, the, the pattern of interference that the camera sees would change in a predictable way. So we did many experiments like that, uh, where the act of looking was purely with the mind, mm -hmm. not with the eyes. And the evidence suggests that the interference pattern does in fact change. No. Changes to a very small degree, uh, probably because it's a very difficult task. Which I guess is one of the other criticisms of these science experiments, that the observed effects are small. Right. But that's kind of what you would expect, right? For something that violates Newtonian physics, more or less, and you wouldn't expect huge violations. No, I think that the, the reason we don't see large effects is because we're asking people to perform a miracle on demand yeah. under That's our really, conditions right. where, where we know in advance what we're looking for. Yep. And in the real world, when gigantic psychic things can happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that are that you don't need statistics to evaluate. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's not done under a controlled condition, so you don't know how to interpret it. Right. So yeah, almost everything we do in the laboratory will end up with a fairly small effect because of the artificial nature of the experiment itself. Yep. And then when you're dealing with light in particular, it, we, we can't see light, and we can't see the individual photons, but that's what's necessary in this experiment. Mm -hmm. So the fact that anything happens at all is already miraculous, yep. and it doesn't matter how big the effect is. Through, through the use of statistics, you can gain confidence in, in the smallest things imaginable. Right. So that was a very interesting adaptation on a very famous experiment, the double slit experiment. Right. Um, and then in terms of huge effects in the real physical world, you also cite the um, uh, example of the 2016 election and the impact that it had on a number of quantum number generators across the world. Right. That one actually uh, was only a single device. Oh, single device. Okay. Yeah, it has it had 32 channels of, okay. of data in it, but it's it's a box basically. This was this is like the next generation of the Global Consciousness Project, and mm -hmm. that that was random generators distributed around the world. The difference here is that with a a, com a commercial random number generator is designed to produce random bits, mm -hmm. like like zeros and ones. In the process of doing that, the output of these electronic circuits have a logical element called an XOR gate, mm -hmm. exclusive OR gate. That is very useful because if the device starts to break, the components are going bad or something, uh, and it starts drifting away from chance, the XOR mm -hmm. output will force it to go back. Yep. So it, it breaks in the direction of chance. Yep. That makes it a very robust device to use because if you're not getting chance, mm -hmm. something strange has happened. Yep. So what we can say were for experiments involving random number generators and the Global Consciousness Project is that something definitely strange happened. Yeah. It's very difficult to figure out what. Yeah. So we developed a new kind of random generator we call a quantum noise generator because it's recording the noise itself. So the, the noise inside a commercial random generator is comes out of a quantum process called electron tunneling. Mm -hmm. So we record that noise. And so now we have a way of looking more at the physical source of what's happening rather than having to figure out where did the bits come from. Mm -hmm. This is good. Uh, it also makes the analysis more complicated because now we're dealing with a thousand bits of noise per second yeah. and not zeros and ones. So the statistics are a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Nevertheless, with that kind of signal, you can do a number of different sorts of analyses. And what we decided to do was look for a disturbance in the force. Mm -hmm. The metaphor there is that uh, when Obi-Wan Kenobi 
in the Star Wars film, uh, the, the, the planet is blown up and he suddenly yeah. staggers because he felt something. Yeah. So it kind of suggests, I mean, there's like a ripple of space time that happened and he just, he felt it. Yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah. So we, we decided to look for a warp in space time. Mm -hmm. The way to do that is to look both for changes in time and changes in space. Mm -hmm. So this is a single a device. It's a box like this big. It has 32 channels of this quantum noise in it. For changes in time, you, you do what's called an autocorrelation analysis. Mm -hmm. You're looking for self-similarity in time. Yep. So normally with a random system, you don't have self-similarity. That's mm -hmm. why we call it random. Yeah. But maybe if there's a ripple coming along that changes the fabric of space-time, you will get a momentary correlation yeah. that shows up. So that's one analysis. The other one is if there's 32 devices, if there's a ripple in space, that normally these are 32 things which are separate from each other, but maybe they're squished together a little bit mm -hmm. and act, start acting like each other. So you have a correlation in space. Yeah. So we did both analyses at, around the time when the election, the 2016 presidential election was actually announced. Yeah. And we found that both space and time showed a, a significant change from chance yeah. at that time. So it kind of suggests that the somewhere between a, a, a big a cry of anguish and a big <laughs> cry of relief yeah. at the same time with millions of people yeah. caused the equivalent of a disturbance in the force. Well, I think that's interesting because a number of folks out there probably feel like we entered into <clears throat> some kind of bizarre parallel universe around that time. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, as a and it's an example of the kind of events that we like to look at. It was yeah. a great one yeah. because and it actually reminds me of way back when we did the similar thing with the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, okay. Because in that case, there was a single moment in time yeah. where something would be announced, guilty yeah. or not guilty. Yeah. So you have hundreds of millions of people listening live mm -hmm. to the saying of that word. Mm -hmm. And here too, we're, saying we're waiting for all of the networks to finally say, well, election's over, yeah. guess who won? Yeah. And people, yeah, there's a lot of shock. Interesting. Um, so th there's a lot of great evidence in support of Psy. Um, do you worry that you're playing into the bias against Psy at all by using the term magic instead of Psy? I, I only worry about it about every fourth Tuesday. <laughs> uh, uh, partially, I, I uh, decided to write more explicitly about magic because <clears throat> even within parapsychology, it comes out of the academic tradition. Yeah. It, it is using the worldview of science in order to understand these phenomena. Mm -hmm. So the tools are really effective, right? Yeah. We're using tools to, to do experiments and to do evaluation of the experiments. Based on the empirical results, you can, we can say that we have high confidence that these things are real. Why did I write about magic? Well, partially, uh, the the motivation was paying attention to my colleagues who are in anthropology who have been saying for years that what the what used to be called the savages and then were called the primitives and now we're called the indigenous peoples, this is not a big deal for them. It's yeah. like part of their life. Uh, and more importantly, that the phenomena that they talk about is exactly what parapsychology has been studying. Yeah. So in the, in a magical tradition, it comes down to three different kinds of practices. There's divination, there's force of will, force of intention, and theurgy, mm -hmm. which is all about spirits and stuff. Well, those phenomena in a parapsychological sense are clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis, and study of survival. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same stuff. So we put a, a, a scientific gloss 
on the words used in parapsychology, and they're typically studied in a much more artificial sense in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. But the phenomena are the same phenomena that have been reported throughout history. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go look back in history to, to look more carefully at what were the practices, what were the beliefs, what were the things that were thought to modulate magical practice, mm -hmm. and see, first of all, are, does, it, does it match up with what we know from parapsychology? Mm -hmm. Answer is yes. Yeah. And secondly, well, how did they understand it? Yeah. Because they're not coming from typically from a scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. So both of those exercises were a way for me to, in a sense, step outside of the scientific worldview for, for a while, mm -hmm. adopt a different worldview, and see if we can take something that was useful from the what might be thought of as a medieval or ancient worldview mm -hmm. and actually use it in some way to advance our understanding today. Mm -hmm. So, so I started to do that, and I pretty quickly learned that there was there was information that we probably ought to be looking at, yeah. as opposed to continually suppressing it, as we've done for many many years. Yeah, it it will not be popular, perhaps, within the academic world because magic is almost used as an insult. Yeah, in science, it's used as an epithet. That's magical thinking. Yeah. But so what? I mean, we're, we're tackling a very difficult problem. Mm -hmm. we, we need to take the risk, as any parapsychologist is doing already, taking a risk, and say, well, why should we ignore this other large body of, of data and evidence just because it entails more risk? Yeah. How could you not have more risk? Well, this is intellectual risk. We, we, don't, right. we, we probably will not get burnt at the stake by talking about magic as being potentially real. Uh, but even, even if that were the case, if people uh, were concerned about not getting tenure or something, yeah. one of the surprises I had in doing research for this book is that within the academic world, the study of magic is already a major thing. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing. So a lot of people are studying the esoteric traditions, Eastern and Western. A lot of people are publishing in peer-reviewed journals on magic. But more like the uh, anthropology department, right? Not in... Well, it's about history, anthropology, yeah. belief in magic, practices in magic. Right. Very few are talking about magic as real. Yeah. But that's just one step. Yeah, right? big step. Yeah. yeah, and there are some, I know there are some that are the scholars who are doing that kind of work who actually do privately think yeah. that it is real. Right, so, privately being the key word there. They yes, wanna, yeah. well, because it's a little <laughs> bit dangerous though. Yeah. But the danger is a taboo. Uh -huh. And the taboo is centuries of suppression. Yes. So... Uh, part of what the, my previous books and this book in particular is saying, you know what, let's grow up and yeah. deal with the possibility that this stuff is real. Right. Because we, we did our survey recently among the general population and also among scientists and engineers, mm -hmm. asking not about what they believe about psychic phenomena, but yeah. what they have experienced. So we expected that among the general population, and we asked 25 different questions about experience, a general population would probably have a pretty high percentage saying at least one of these psychic type things that they've had an experience of. Mm -hmm. We expected that scientists and engineers would be a lot lower, mm -hmm. just because that's kind of the way it's portrayed. Yeah. So we found that over 90% of the general population has had at least one psychic mm -hmm. thing that they had. The same was true for scientists and engineers, over 90%. Mm -hmm. so that means the vast majority of people yeah. Whether regardless of what their profession is, yeah. they have the experiences. We don't talk yeah. about them right. except in the in terms of entertainment or yeah. stage magic or Harry Potter. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm saying that, that this is a taboo that needs to break. Yeah. So that's that's part of the thrust of, of the whole series of books that I've been writing. People are very good at creating these weird schisms or splits within their own psyches and belief systems. Um, and that, that's a good example of that. Um, kind of staying on the theme of uh, bias against Psy, um, in the book, you tell this interesting anecdote about how you and some colleagues had a very robust study published in a very respected scientific journal. Mm. Um, and it was later retracted, basically out of bias. Can you just talk a bit about that? I mean, that was pretty shocking to me. Yeah, so uh, we did a study involving mediums mm -hmm. uh, doing a straightforward task in the laboratory. Uh, it was featured uh, by the journal's um, own publicity people. It had been downloaded. There was an open source yeah. place on the web, so downloaded thousands of times. And out of the blue one day, we get a, a notice of retraction. Mm -hmm. Well, normally, when you, a retraction is very serious because it means that that something about the paper was either found to be fraudulent yeah. or found to be uh, irreparably faulty in some way right. or plagiarized, and in which case then it's withdrawn and you get a, a permanent uh, R, a big yeah. R stamped on the paper, just like, like the, the scarlet letter. letter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is this is bad news. Yeah. So normally when when that happens, the you get a, a the authors get a chance to respond yeah. because maybe somebody made a mistake or something. We were told flat out, you will not get a chance to respond. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you say, we're retracting this. Yeah. Of course, we protested, saying, well, it's, and it's unethical to do yeah. that. They went ahead and retracted it anyway. Right. And they basically admitted that it was just well, we, bias. No, right? we asked, is this, do you yeah. think there's fraud? No. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's flaws? No. Is it a methodological error or some type? No. Well, what is it? Right. A response. Yeah. So we, we were able to trace down through uh, through Twitter and other sources that probably what happened is that because it's a prominent journal, mm -hmm. that some people complained. Yeah. And they said that we're no longer going to publish in this journal because it's too soft on this whole ESP thing. Right. And it will damage our career. Yeah. So it, it basically it came down to the taboo is so strong that academics said, we're not going to go to your journal anymore, right. which has a big economic impact on the journal. Yeah. So somewhere along the lines, the editor said, you know what, we're not going to take papers of this type anymore yeah. that are positive on this topic. Right. If it's negative on the topic, we will publish it. Yeah. And so you, you can publish a study that's saying this stuff doesn't exist. Right. You can't study, you can't publish a one that says it does exist. Yeah. So, so I mean, to me, that's outright bigotry. And that's the Inquisition. It's the yeah, it's the same type of bigotry that led to, for example, you know, Rupert Sheldrake's TED Talk getting banned. Right. Um, and I, I kind of feel like the only way we make any sort of headway on that front is to call people out. Is there any chance you would tell us which journal did this to you, or? Oh, you can find out very easily. It's okay. Because Frontiers in Psychology. Okay. Or it may, well, maybe not. Maybe it's Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. It was one of the Frontiers series. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, wow. So where do you think we are right now um, in terms of Psy and its general acceptance? I mean, I, I've kind of made the point, which I was surprised to see you make in your book as well, that you know you see lots of examples of it in pop culture now. Mm -hmm. for, for instance, the Doctor Strange movie. Mm -hmm. um, I love that movie. It's, it's, it's a great movie, yeah. yeah. I mean, it sensationalizes Psy quite a bit, but yeah. you know, I think that's fine. Um, but you make an interesting point that Psy has really been in the consciousness to varying degrees in and out, in and out of vogue for quite a long time. So 
what's sort of your overall take? You think we're making progress in terms of it becoming more generally accepted, more respectable, um, or is it just kind of a lot of ebb and flow back and forth? I think that the uh, interest in this topic and related topics go through about a 20 year cycle. Yeah. Uh, clearly in the 60s and 70s and the psychedelic revolution time, it was much more popular. Mm -hmm. It was very popular in the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's beginning to come back up, beginning to rise again. Yeah. And maybe not a coincidence that there's also rising interest in re-looking at psychedelics. Yeah. So there, there are periods in history where there are fads and fashions in science, just like in any other domain of human affairs. There are always going to be younger people coming along who have a slightly different worldview in the academic sense. And that uh, it, something like quantum mechanics used to be at the farthest strange realm of physics, uh, but now it's being taught in high school. Yeah. So the idea that the that the the world is not the way that it seems, that there's there are different layers of reality, and we live in a much stranger place than we thought. I think that is at least causing people to be able to talk about these topics mm -hmm. in, in academia in particular. And also the huge rise in conferences on consciousness. No. They're like everywhere now. No. You just throw a stone and you'll have a new one. So that is also making a big impact. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is still very heavily neuroscience based mm -hmm. and some philosophy. But it's simply the idea that people are allowed to talk about a topic that 30 years ago wasn't even on the radar mm -hmm. makes this, you, you can see an opening beginning to happen. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that the, the number of journals and the uh, the academic tier of the journal is increasing. While there are always some journals that are the editors just go crazy, there are more journals that are becoming open to these phenomena. Mm -hmm. So since I, I've been doing this now over 40 years, I can say that the, uh, the level of openness among people who are now my age, because we, we all grew up in the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, and remember what it was like, a more open, society in some ways back then, well, now we're in positions of authority. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing reflected in terms of who is open about it, yeah. who's willing to talk about it. The, I would say that the level of resistance is about the same as it probably always been. Mm -hmm. There's always 10% of the people who would gladly join the Inquisition if they had the opportunity. <laughs> And we, we, that, that is very clearly evident everywhere yeah. in the world. There's just people who are drawn to that kind of crazy rigid authority. Yeah. You see it in politics, you see it in science, every domain, there's just some people who want that. Yeah. But it's always, it's like 10%. Mm -hmm. Well, 10% can control the world. Yeah, they seem to have an outsized influence. Well, they're very loud and vocal yeah. about it. But the other 90% out there actually are fascinated by these things. Right. And, and they, they like to talk about it. Right. If that weren't true, then we wouldn't see it saturated in the media all the time yeah. and in entertainment. So we know the interest is there. Part of breaking of taboo is simply to point out that there is a taboo. So I spend a little time in my books pointing out at people and journals and stuff saying, look, this is how this taboo is sustained. Mm -hmm. It's people doing these crazy things. Mm -hmm. And so I know that it's effective because one of the criticisms I see in my books from skeptics is that I spend the entire book bashing the skeptics. Yeah. I don't. Right. I usually have like a chapter or a little piece up here and there. But all that they can see is this guy's fighting back. 
-hmm. So I know I'm doing it correctly mm -hmm. because if they weren't fighting at all, then they wouldn't care. Mm -hmm. Well, they do care. So that is, it's the idea of pointing out a taboo again and again and again, just like other social taboos have been broken. Yeah. 10 years ago, same-sex marriage, impossible. And, and legalized marijuana, impossible. So there's long run-ups that are pushing it continually for, for decades, generations even, mm -hmm. to make that happen. Well, the same thing is happening in the psi world too. Yeah. And it's, it's not to suddenly say that everything is suddenly psychic and everything becomes new age instantly overnight. All, right. I'm, all I'm trying to say is that we need to have adult conversations yeah. about these things, including in the scientific world, right. without immediately having reactions right. which are being driven by these prejudices that have just been around. Right. And it, it sounds like you share some of the same skepticism that kind of the hardcore materialist share um, over, you know, new agers, which I wouldn't put either you or I in that category, um, that want to point to things like, you know, quantum theory or the double slit experiment to explain everything that is unexplainable. Um, and that seems very fair. Hmm. Um, so in, in terms of models of reality, just to kind of close here, you, you kind of propose seven different models in your book and you i think support this notion of idealism which mm -hmm. basically posits that consciousness is primary um right but does not deny materialism right which is important because if, if you, th you think of the philosophy as materialism over here and idealism over there yeah and, and never the twain shall meet yeah well that's a problem yeah so pure idealism can lead to solipsism mm -hmm. which is not a very viable way of thinking about reality either so i'm thinking of it more as that yes, there's kind of a spectrum, but it's more like materialism is this concept, mm -hmm. but but this idealism is a bigger one that can contain it, but right. it has more to it. Right. And so this seems to be an idea that is gaining some currency, and I guess I would um, put uh, Deepak Chopra's book of last year, uh, You Are the Universe, in that category, and I think you referenced that in your book as well. Yeah. And he wrote that with a real physicist, uh, Manus Capados. Um, and so he he kind of, I did a podcast with Deepak about this last year, and he sort of um, uses this idea of qualia as being kind of the basic building block of his model of reality. Um, it, it basically posits that, um, you know, reality is, is subjective and has to do with what is observed. Um, and I don't know if you're too familiar with it, but do you think you're like-minded in that sense? Is there some daylight between you and Deepak? Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, of course, he's, he's coming from an Ayurvedic point of view, yep. and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that tradition. Uh, I guess since I, I, I was uh, brought up in the scientific tradition, mm -hmm. I I still like materialism because yeah. you can do stuff with it. I like, and also with all my engineering training, I like to make stuff. It's, it's difficult to know how to make stuff with consciousness at yeah. this point. I think eventually, if we're smart enough and last long enough, we'll figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. But we're so far away from it from the, at this point mm -hmm. that I'm just I'm more interested in the notion of having a discussion between those two philosophical ideas yeah. without immediately collapsing in one or the other or having to do po polemics and apologetics and making it kind of a religious battle. Yeah, I just think that it, we need to discuss it uh, primarily because it's being pushed yeah. by psi phenomena. Uh -huh which would make psi phenomena just part of everyday science and scholarship. Mm -hmm. uh, it also, it helps explain more about the nature of, act, of actual experience. We, we live in a material universe, uh, but maybe we live in more than that. Yeah. 
So I see a, a lot of the books that end up in the metaphysical genre, which is where most of my books end up because they don't know where else to put it. Yeah. They come down hard on one particular viewpoint or another. Uh, there are fewer books that, that try to look at the positive of each one of the different ways of thinking about reality. Mm -hmm. I tend to be a chronic optimist about everything. Mm -hmm. I think if, if, if you weren't both an iconoclast and an optimist, you wouldn't be doing cyber research mm -hmm. because it, there's a lot of pressure not to. Yeah. So that's just, just part of my personality to, to immediately look at the, the other side of, the, of an argument. Mm -hmm. and try to, to like put myself in that person's position to gain insight about my own position. Yeah. And so I just naturally do that. And that's what I'm trying to do with, with talking about the esoteric traditions as simply another set of glasses to put on. Yeah. And so what can we take from that that seems to make sense? And once you do that, how do you integrate it with, with your other set of glasses? Mm -hmm. There's an infinite number of sets of glasses. Yeah. So I'm only considering like two in this book because it's only 200 and some pages. Right. But I can imagine. I can imagine a, a series of volumes, which is is diving deep into the various philosophies. Mm -hmm. that, and I have always resisted studying philosophy in depth because it makes my brain hurt. Yeah. I'm an empiricist and I, I like to do stuff mm -hmm. and and just purely going in your head and working with ideas in the way that philosophers do, I don't find that very easy. Yeah. So I'm not the right person to- Or to, perhaps useful. Well, no, I think it is very useful. Okay. I mean, in fact, it's essential. Yeah. I, I don't think I would have said that 20 years ago because huh. I didn't think very much about philosophy. Okay. But, but now that I see that uh, we, we need to understand uh -huh. how science works, which is based on a philosophy, it's yeah. based on assumptions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes assumptions are good and sometimes they're not so good. So we need to find out which assumptions aren't working so well. Yeah. And there's nothing better to illustrate that we're dealing with, a, with a, a poor assumption than have being faced with anomalies that never go away. Yeah. So people have been reporting psychic phenomena forever. Mm -hmm. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah. In, the old, in the old days, meaning medieval and before, it was either supernatural, it was a divine gift, which is sort of saying, I don't know what it is, God did it. Or it was some kind of secret ceremonial behind the scenes something, most of which was superstition, yeah. which wasn't an explanation either. Yeah. And then science came along and science said, we don't know what to do with this. We're not gonna pay any attention to it. Yeah. So we're faced with anomalies forever. That tells us that something about our assumptions and the nature of reality is not right. Right. So we need to fix it. Yeah. So unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, that's a philosophical issue. That's an issue that is involving the analysis of assumptions, analysis of other ones that we're not using at the time, and then seeing what happens if you start playing with those assumptions. Yeah. So it's like philosophy of science. Well, so, I mean, thank you so much for your contributions over the year in trying to advance that discussion. Um, so Dean Radin, his latest book is Magic is Real. Oh, Real Magic. Sorry, Real Magic. Go check it out. Um, if you enjoyed this, please share it up. Uh, thanks for joining us. See you all next time. Hey everyone, thanks for watching. If you'd like to see more podcasts, such as Episode 8 with Dean Raiden, podcasts that aren't associated with any particular Hemisync product, but simply feature fascinating people and subjects associated with the frontiers of consciousness research and understanding, 
please support our Patreon page and get some great discounts on Hemisync products in the bargain. Thanks for supporting the show.